This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got today? Well, today we're going to look at a warrior class, military nobility of ancient Japan, or otherwise known as the, the samurai. So we're going to look a little bit about what made up this ruling military class, the social caste that they had, basically, um, who employed them, the weapons that they used, the tactics that they used, their rise, and then their eventual fall. We'll talk about a little, some fun facts, some infamous samurais along the way and stuff like that, and hopefully give you a little bit of background information on the samurai. You know, when I was doing research for this, one, and we just briefly talked about it before I click record, I learned a lot more about Japan. And it's funny because we've taken classes in college, you and I, about the history of Japan. And I just, I guess you forget stuff. It's definitely interesting to have a whole rich culture, you know, and I think one reason that makes it interesting, Pete, like you were saying, just because it is, it's different, obviously, than what we're used yeah. to in the West, but there's, there's some similarities there too. A lot, yeah, and I think we'll, we'll touch upon those as well. But Japan itself, as uh, just so we know, we are talking about Japan, not China. So let's not get confused. Samurai do come from Japan, from China. Same thing with ninjas, which could be a podcast in itself. I kind of came across a lot of yeah. that history doing this Well, there well. was some interaction between samurai and ninja, which I'm sure we'll yep. talk about. Yep. So Japan obviously lies east of China uh, in the direction of the sunrise. So Japan itself comes from a Chinese word, uh, comes from two Chinese words, jikpen, right? Which actually means from the direction of the sun, which makes sense, which is why it is often known. As the land of the rising sun, like their flag, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's made up of about 3,000 volcanic islands. Many of these 3,000 volcanic islands though, are very tiny. Primarily, the people themselves live on just the four of the largest islands. And we're not really going to get into all of Japanese history, but really kind of start off with when does this class of samurai warriors really come to be? And I, everywhere I looked at it, it basically said around 646 AD. Yeah, yeah getting around that time. Well, basically, yeah, the samurai, right, with the bushi, right? They were the yep. warriors of Japan we talked about. And they really came, they were the highest social caste of the Edo period, right? And that was from yep. 1603 to 1867. They employed a bunch of different weapons, bows, arrows, spears. They, they did use guns. That's something that I didn't really know about until later on. They did use some aspects of guns and stuff like that, but mostly they were, we're talking about the katana and their swords. And Two they swords. were supposed to, yep. yeah, they were supposed to live their lives according to the code of Bushido, which I'm sure you've heard of before. People hear of that, right? The way of the warrior. But it was really influenced by uh, Confucianism yep, and it stressed yep. concepts like what, like loyalty to the master, self-discipline, respectful behavior. And like they were really, it was a lot of samurais were also drawn to the teachings of Zen Buddhism. So it was really like a peaceful and kind of flow and everything. It's also like, you know, brutal war also. So yeah, like this balance, right? That yin and yang is also something that's very big in that culture. Tracing it back a little bit as to how we go about the rise, I guess, of the uh, samurai, around a, it was known as the high age in Japan. It's around 1,000 to 1,200. Uh, Japan develops this feudal system, right? Very similar to one in Europe, kind of like the Middle Ages. We uh, alluded to that before. Each lord within Japan, because Japan was broken into these different lordships, you might say. What you would think of when you learn like feudalism in um, ancient Europe. You know, yep. we had like the different kingdoms. It's the, it's the same basic concept. It's just happening in Japan, in, in, Japan, in Asia. Yeah. yeah, yeah, feudal Japan. So each one of these um, lords would surround itself with a bodyguard or these loyal warriors. And 
all of there's a lot of wars going on around 1000 to 1200 between these different rival lords and it was commonplace they fought all the time and then the lesser lords would kind of pledge to fight for the greater lords in exchange for some form of protection and eventually peasants began to pay taxes to these lords and not really to the central government so really it was japan was ruled by these lords but where i'm getting at here is all these lords had these warriors that fought for them and protected them. And these warriors were known as the samurai. Uh, samurai actually meant one who serves, if you look at the definition yeah, of it. Definition. This idea of the samurai, which we'll get into the Bushido and all that stuff, uh, basically samurai's honor was constantly on the line. The idea was to prove one's absolute courage in battle and loyalty to his lord. What eventually starts to happen is by like 1100s, there's two main clans the Taira and the Minamoto, and they kind of gathered the largest armies of samurai, and they wind up fighting up and down these two clans, murderers, battles, so on and so forth. And after almost 30 years or so of fighting, the war ends in 1185 with a Minamoto victory. And in 1192, the emperor kind of realizes that he doesn't have much power, so he gives a Minamoto leader named Yoritomo. Yoritomo. He gives him the title of the first shogun, uh, which actually meant the supreme general of the emperor's army. And from that point forward, the shogun really has the real power. It's kind of like a military dictator, you might say. The official judges, taxes, armies, roads were all under the shogun's authority. So the emperor still lived around in Kyoto, but at the end of the day, it really was the shogun that kind of controlled that kind of Japan. Tying to what we, we were more, more associated with this, like in World War II and stuff, that idea is still there. Like these, like when it's like the military is ruling things with the emperor as the supreme being, right? Yeah. That type of stuff. So the shogun, even though they're not called shoguns or samurais. So yeah, but they're, they're just generals. The generals yeah. But like also like the Japanese, like they kind of, they purposely bring back that idea of the samurai and the Bushido code. But they say now everyone can do that, right? So because the yep. samurais are just so like, like legendary status in Japan by like the 1930s yeah. and 40s. So like, and like that, like descendants of samurais were still alive, obviously. So they just kind of like say, oh, you can be samurai. Like follow that code. You're, you're that now for their new regime. And that's one reason yeah. why they kind of brought it back. And so many of them had those swords and stuff like that. That's getting a little off topic, but this culture is so strong that like it carries on even to modern times. Absolutely. And actually lesser for a long time, because what happens is the show. Well, 700 what- years. Yeah, it winds up moving uh, the military headquarters to Kamakura and basically becomes known as the Kamakura Shogun. And it lasts, you're right, about 700 years to like 1860s. You basically are ruled under this system of shoguns. And there's a lot of local lords that are still holding power, except the shogun is like the real leader of the nation. During this time, the shogun loses a little bit of power, which I think could be a podcast in itself. When you have the Mongol invasions or the failed Mongol yeah. invasions, they actually fail because of weather and storms, luckily. Well, yeah. Uh, well, that's the um, the uh, kamikaze, right? Yep. Yep. The big tsunami. Um, and that's how they get that divine wind. Divine wind. Again, coming up to World War II, right? And yeah, that's why, they're, that's why those suicide pilots are called out in World War II, the kamikaze. Yeah, so ultimately what ends up happening here in about uh, 1280s or something, when you have the uh, Mongols attack Japan, the Shogun kind of loses a little bit of, of his power because he loses a lot of money and he can no longer really pay his samurai or his military of warriors around the country. So a lot of these samurais start attaching themselves very closely to local lords. And soon enough, you have samurais started fighting like almost one another in these civil wars because they start they fighting these for skill. these. And these lords, right, are called um, daimyos, I think. Yeah. Samurais start 
fighting for these you know feudal lords between one another and this really kind of lasts from between 1467 to 1568 it's actually known as the age of the country at war which sucks it's like a hundred years of of war oh just constantly you see that a lot you don't ever notice that pete you see that a lot in like i guess ancient times or if you want to call it like all the medieval europe and stuff like that too yeah like the hundred years war right between france which can you imagine that but you have these wars and it, it, they're not fighting like we don't, they're not like wars like we think of now obviously like battles like, no it's just they're yeah, in a state but, of war yeah. but they're in a constant state of war where they're constantly looking for a chance to fight each other and stuff like that so it's not necessarily like they're fighting every single day for a hundred years but you're yeah. just constantly at war you have a whole generation is brought up to just be like well yeah we're at war with this clan or if you're in europe we're at war with this country and stuff like that it's just like a crazy concept to fully wrap your head around that it's just like that's just what it is like it was just accepted for over a hundred years. We're at war. Yeah. Get, get yeah. ready for it. Dominate everything. Imagine though, like your entire life, you're born into a time of war and you, you basically go through your whole life at a time preparing, of war. Yeah. Preparing for war, being, being ready for war, training for war. Like it's just not, it's I can't imagine. not going away. I mean, I guess you could make the argument. I mean, no, well, we were born at a time of peace. 80s was peace. Well, unless you count Cold well, War, but it's not Cold really war, war. And stuff like that. Well, you can always argue, I guess, you know, with all the wars that America gets involved in. Like and there's always something, right? Like we average yeah. a war, major war every twenty years, probably even more than that now. But it's it's different too because we're not we're not fighting in it. You know, you might know someone who is, but you're not the country's not suffering, not like dealing with the ramifications of it either. Yeah, all the time, directly. In late 1500s, you have these two daimyos that get into this huge fight, and Hideyoshi. Uh, in 1588 kind of takes power and this is where he also kind of elevates the samurai because he orders a sword hunt uh, where he commands all peasants to surrender their swords and other decrees kind of very strict barriers right between social classes because Hideyoshi himself uh, had risen from a common foot soldiers to the ruler of the country through different civil war and he did not really intend for others to follow that. So a peasant or a merchant could no longer wear an armor of a samurai, only specific samurai that were under his control, because Hideyoshi eventually becomes a shogun, um, could have weapons and could be the official warriors of Japan. And it kind of stays like that. Really, you know, Japan closes the door until Matthew Perry comes about, which we'll get to in a little bit. Yes, yes. All right, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about samurai, and then we'll get into obviously Matthew Perry and guns, and you know the end how of things samurai. change. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I guess like, like we talked about a little bit about what they basically did. So like we said they were employed by those feudal lords. Not every samurai had a dynamo, right? There was a few that didn't, and those were known as ronins. So if you didn't yep. have one, I'm sure you've seen movies and stuff like that called like called those things. Uh, but they were known for last their martial Ronin arts or 47 skills. Ronins or something. Yeah. yeah, the last Ronin. Well, that was the last Samurai too with Tom Cruise, which, yeah, when you think Samurai, yep. you think of Tom Cruise, but okay. Also, when you yeah. think of fighter pilots, I guess you think of Tom Cruise, right? And bartenders and everything else. And jumping spies. on couches. Jumping on couches. Super super spies. Yeah, there you go. But they, they were basically to hold the ter- their uh, their lord's territory against rivals, right? They had to fight the enemies that anyone that, uh, that was identified by the government um, they would fight against hostile tribes, bandits, like the Mongols, obviously. And they lived in barracks, actually. And then later on, they actually lived in, a, in castles. And they, like, they had a private home like built into castles. That's really where they, who, what they had. And there actually were female samurai. Well, no, there wasn't. There wasn't female samurais, but there were female warriors in pre-modern Japan, the Onamusha. And they fought in battle alongside samurai men. And they were members of that warrior class, the Bushi, the warrior class. They were there. And they were trained to use of weapons to protect their household and family and honor of all times in war. So they were like always prepared, but there were no female samurais. They were just like 
female warriors, if that makes sense. So something that, you know, the one thing, yeah, the one thing I read about women too, it's, it was very common, you know, samurai, as you kind of mentioned, eventually they get such a status, especially when the rest of the country is disarmed, that when you're a samurai warrior, you're not just like this gun for hire. Like you really have a status, you're educated, you become like a, a leader really of in yeah. a community and, and you have that money and all that stuff. But what was really interesting is that if you disgraced yourself in battle, you could, or you were encouraged to basically commit suicide. Talking about women, if you were married, if the samurai chose to kill himself because he disgraced his leader or he did not win a battle, it was expected of the wife to also kill herself by this ritual of suicide along with her husband. So it's almost like if your husband failed at his, you know, and we'll get into Bushido code of honor, then you should kill yourself as well. And women had an option, though, because the men were supposed to cut stomach, their stomachs right? out more or less. Yeah. And women had an option of cutting their stomach or their neck. And they were also allowed to tie their legs together before... They committed suicide, so they could be found in a more dignified pose. Okay, yeah. then. Yeah. Right. And then a Ronin. You mentioned Ronin. Ronin, like for me, when I started doing this research, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. You're like a like a Jedi Knight. You know what I mean? Like just kind of walking around. Yeah. You have your not sword. Quite. But not quite. Actually, <laughs> if you are, you are like a worthless person without a master. If you were a samurai whose master died or whose leader died, or, um, or you know, you basically yeah. kicked yeah, out. You were just, Literally, you were disgraced and kicked out. People were like, uh, you were ridiculed. They're like, go away. Like, they were kind of equivalent to homeless people. Well, I think the um, Ronin kind of gets, like, like popularized in, like, Western culture because it's kind of like, oh, he's the outlaw, right? He's the loner type of thing. Yeah, that's very, like, like the Western that's very thing, Western. Yeah. yeah, it's very yeah. Western. It's very Western culture. Like, yeah, the individualism. You know, like, they can do anything. Yeah, it's one one Ronin against everybody, right? So they, they that kind of gravitated, you know, from, from that era. I would think like when it became very popular in the West is what I mean. And at the same time, when you're looking at the samurai uh, warriors, almost all samurai could read and write, um, especially Which is a big deal. Where, big deal. Big deal. Yeah. Literacy levels in Europe were like non-existent and these guys were reading and writing and also big into art and painting and anything art, like yeah, that. Teachers, a lot of them during times of peace became teachers and stuff like that. Yeah. So maybe they would have become podcasters if they had it back then. Who knows? <laughs> this, the samurai podcast. The samurai podcast. Samurai. Actually, I bet you just... There's got to be one out there somewhere called that. There's got to be out there. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah if, not, we're, if not, let's, let's copyright it right now. LLC. That's right. We're going to start another one. Samurai podcast. Just because it sounds cool. Indeed. So uh, let's get into a little bit of, you know, what it meant to be a samurai. And I think samurai, when you think of samurai, obviously you think of the swords. And you also the think katana. of the, yeah, and the elaborate dress that they had. Because it wasn't just swords. It was also what they wore, the costume itself. The armor... It consisted of like a leather, like leather shin guards, uh, billowing pantaloons, kimono, broad thigh guards tied over the pantaloons, right? Then he had metal case shoulder guards that were huge, this yeah. big chest protector, an iron collar, a cotton skull cap. Then there was an iron face mask that covered most, if not half of their face. Roughly. And these are like works. Of, these are like works of art, too. When yes. You saw them. Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. As were the um, swords. And as well, the swords they believed were like part of them, right? That's what I got out yeah, of it. Yeah, like very spiritual. Yeah. Well, the last one, those sword, swords took a year to make, like those actual katana, like blades, like the true blades and stuff like that, that were made during that time. They took a long amount of time to make. There was a craftsman who would make them. They would put their own marks on them. And yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a status symbol. It was a family symbol that would be passed down. Those katanas, those samurai swords, which most of them right now are actually in the United States, like authentic Samurai swords, most in the United States, they were taken as um, spoils of war during the Second World War. 
That's crazy, uh, isn't soldiers. it? So yeah, there's more in the United States than are in Japan. I always thought of Indiana Jones and like the last one, not the last one, but the last one in the 80s, the last crusade, where at the beginning, the young Indiana Jones is like, this belongs in a museum. And, you know, now that like, uh, you know, we're historians, we're older, I think of like, it probably doesn't belong in a museum. Like, because Indiana Jones always thought like in an American museum, but most of the stuff we have in American museums are actually yeah, stolen. Like, taken from somewhere <laughs> yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah. It's messed up. So it's like, it belongs in a museum. And then like, you look back and you're like, mm, I mean, like, I guess that was meant to be pure, but. It probably belongs inside that country and that museum. Yeah, for, I mean, you right. see them there. Yeah, absolutely. Not necessarily where we're going with it. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Yeah, no, there was this idea that uh, Samurai was one with his sword. This, this sword was almost like part of one's Which, code and culture. Yeah, it makes sense because that's your main weapon. Like, that's what you're using to fight off, kill your enemy, defend yourself. So the idea is you have to be good with it. Make it one, like, one in the same with yourself because it has to be a part of you if you're going to, like, defend yourself with it all the time. And it's a status symbol, too. Only samurais were allowed to walk around with swords, I believe, right? So just and it was two. Yep. One where you would traditionally known as like samurai, as a katana, and then a smaller one, right? Wakizashi, yeah. Wakizashi, that's what it was. Not too like Leonardo carried. No, 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 not identical. So yeah. the entire samurai culture was grounded in this concept of bushido, and we alluded to this a few times. Basically, what that meant is, as you mentioned, the way the warrior and the central tenets of this bushido code were honor and freedom from fear of death. So ultimately, because uh, you mentioned before also, like when this was brought back in World War II, like honor and freedom from fear of death. Like you're not supposed to be afraid of dying. No, um, that dying is, a, is an honor if you're dying for your leader. Yeah. A samurai was legally entitled to cut down any commoner who failed to honor him or, you know, or his property. Yeah. And that's it. And that's the thing, too. Like I was reading, like, are the, are the samurais good or bad? And they're like, they're not really either. They're just doing, they're following like their rules, their code, but the code isn't as chivalrous or as honorable as like a lot of the films and books portray them to be like they, yeah, like you said, they were just kill If you, if they thought their honor was being tarnished in some way, they would kill that person. You know, they were brave and skilled warriors, but they, they definitely burned down villages. A lot of them collected the heads of the people that they killed. Like, yeah, that was just, that? that was very, that was very common. Like, like the trophy, like you collect their heads and that's not something that you really like they talk about because again, it doesn't, fit with this narrative but you know they it wasn't just like oh no i will not harm innocent women and children that that was not that was no not, they, they cut women that, and children beheaded them that, as well it, yep if that was the enemy you gotta get rid of them that's just what you do i was very surprised when i started reading about the whole beheading things like they would carry a bag with heads and and that was also a piece of evidence that you if like your leader right sends you out you always brought the head to prove that you did what you were supposed to do. But even for their own death, because death was such a common occurrence, they actually would prepare. One thing the samurai would did is they they burned these incense things in their helmets 
So their helmets always had a certain smell to them that in case their head was cut off, it didn't smell so bad as it was collected and brought over to be presented to somebody. Well, they're it's being like, considerate of the head collector people, I guess. That's why it's nice. The thing about that, you're like, it's so, if you're too, you're fighting about like, oh, my head can get very easily get chopped off. So let me just like make sure. They're talking about sharp swords. Did you see this one? So, so they, they said that they were some of the sharpest swords in the world Ever, to this yeah. day, really. To test their swords, there's different methods. One common way was to make 16 specific cuts uh, through a dead body that they would hang from a tree. And another test was to test your sword on a convicted criminal. So it's like once your, your sword was finally forged for you, they would literally like kill somebody, hang them up, you know, bad person, presumably, and see if it could cut the body in specific ways, or they would just find some convicted criminal and try to get them as well. Oftentimes, they would actually kill random people that were like on the street. Like if you didn't look at them the right way, if, you know, if you didn't respect them, variety of weapons, though. I mean, it wasn't just the swords. No, it right? wasn't a sword. They used yeah, spears. They used gunpowder. Not using like Gatling guns. That kind of what spells the end of them, like the repeating rifles. Not using rifles, but I guess um, m- almost like musket types, right? They use those yep. weapons. Uh, also bows. Bows are pretty big for that. Bows and arrows. Yeah, that was their big, yeah. Yep. That's a big like distance weapon. Projectile. It was definitely bows and arrows. And actually guns. The guns were initially introduced to Japan from Europe at about 1543. Samurai were the only ones allowed to own guns until the middle of 19th century. So until 1850s, samurai only walk around with swords. It's so wrong. Like, no, they legit. Yeah, they had those flintlock rifles. It was like the flintlock. Yeah. Um, I think one, another thing that was interesting, did you see, I saw this name pop up a few times and he was considered like the um, most famous samurai of them all, Miyamoto. And he's basically known as, he's the most famous um, samurai of them all, the most skilled swordsman, the best horseman, all those things. And he's basically reached like mythic status in, in Japan. Like his name is like what we would give to like Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan. Like he's like the golden standard of the samurai in Japan. Like the things that he did, like, again, a lot of it, remember we did talk about like Davy Crockett and he was like, you know, he could ride lightning bolts. So he did all those stuff. That's kind of like what Miyamoto was like in Japan. Like this guy just like, he sliced his sword and just swung it through the air and the force of his, of his slice destroyed the enemy like stuff like that but he's like a legend but he's probably the most famous of all the samurai but it was a lot of even some foreigners did become samurais i'm sure you well, saw i that. saw that too right yeah only there four european few. men were recorded yeah there was some uh there was a dutch dude there's an english sailor uh french navy officer others might have fought with the samurai but only a shogun could grant samurai status so it's almost like knighting someone again in Europe. I know we keep on making that comparison, but it's a very fair comparison. Well, and then there is, you know, which is something we talked about, maybe making a podcast uh, one of these days as well. That was Yasuke, who arrived in Japan yes. in 1579. Based on what I read, he arrived with a priest, Italian priest, and he came through India. But the reason why Yasuke is kind of known is the sheer fact that Yasuke was black. And he is commonly known to historians as the Black Samurai. We really don't know if he was a slave or if he wasn't a slave. That has not been established. We do know that he first kind of comes out in the capital city of Kyoto. um, And then he crosses paths with his feudal lord. And the feudal lord kind of assigns him to um, one of his samurai. And it kind of leads to this training what really kind of separated from everybody else is the fact that he was over six feet tall which was and it's huge 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 yeah. huge especially by that in that time yeah those standards and they said that he had the strength of 10 men like it's almost like why is there not a movie about this well they said they uh, chadwick uh Baldwin was actually um connected oh, to, supposed a movie to play? yeah but yeah. he, he uh, unfortunately passed away and I, there was a um animated series that was released and it tells the story of it 
but it's kind mm-hmm. of like sensationalizes like magic and robots and stuff like that in it too. But um, they did have it. I'm sure they'd make some sort of uh, movies and stuff like that at some point. I think what eventually happens to him, he is ambushed somewhere, and because he doesn't want to surrender, he does perform the seppuku, which is yeah, they off think, his yeah, they intestines. think. But it's not again, much we known. think, yeah, yeah, they think, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not, they're not, they're not sure. Um, I saw a lot of things with the samurai fighting ninja. They actually did fight each other. Really? That, that, that's something that did happen. There were several times. Um, the samurais usually always won, obviously. Ninjas were more like guerrilla tactics, stealth, quickness. Samurais were more like out, more out in the open. But during the War of Tensho Aga in 1581, the ninja clans got pretty much almost wiped out by the samurais. All right, by the, they were the forces of Odai Nobungana. Right? Mm-hmm. And this is the same guy that um, actually that the uh, black samurai fought for, believe it or not. And then the uh, the ninja were defeated, almost wiped out. But that's kind of they said this is almost when some of that legends of the ninja really started to um, get carried on because the samurai were impressed by their fighting skills, by their tactics. When I was younger, I was always like obsessed with ninjas. Well, remember that movie, yeah. American Ninja? Yeah, he's always have to Americanize everything, which is fine, which is cool. No, but you, do you remember American Ninja with Michael Dudikoff? I, yeah, I remember it somewhat. It's good. They, it's they made a couple of them. I know they made a couple. There were like there was like four of them, I think. Yeah, but we're we're from the '80s, so our exposure to ninjas was like Ninja Turtles. I was gonna say there's not a lot of movies about samurai, but one of the most famous movies is The Seven Samurai. I'm considered yeah. one of the, the greatest movies of all time. Yeah, The Last Samurai. I remember with Tom Cruise. Yeah, but that one doesn't count. That's what I was. I mean, it was an interesting story, but it was it's not really historically accurate. Let's just say. Yeah, yeah. And Tom Cruise was actually not the last samurai. Uh, the last samurai or the last person who um, is considered the last samurai is a man by the name of um, Sago Takamori. And he actually um, lived from 1829 to 1877. When he died, he's usually remembered as being the last samurai, the last person who followed Bushido, followed that code. But he mm. was the last one. The samurais were pretty much stripped by their power by 1877. Yeah. And so kind of followed. He was just kind of like looked on, I guess, as like the last person of that age, more or less. Yeah. So let's uh, let's kind of get into the the end of the samurai. But anyway, the movie is obviously um, Akira Kurosawa's movie um, that I mentioned before, Seven Samurai, it came out in 1954. I remember watching it in college, and I remember it being long. I'm pretty sure it was like almost four hours long. That movie. That was an intense movie. I sat through it. I had to watch it in class, and I was like, wow, this is a long movie. Oh, that's because um, the professor just didn't want to teach those days. The, you know, now we, now we know. Now we know. <laughs> so anyway, things start to really change. Meiji Restoration. Essentially, what ends up happening is mid-19th century, uh, you have the stability um, of the Shogun inside Japan kind of starts to waver a little bit. And you have the big thing is the incursion of Western powers into Japan, yeah. especially the 1853 Commodore Matthew C. Perry and the U.S. Navy that like sails in to Japan. Basically uh, and forced basically, them. Be like, yeah. 100%. But also, I mean, it forced them to sign a commercial treaty with the United States. It's like, look, you, you like all our guns? We have all these guns and we have this gunpowder and all this stuff and we could basically kill you all. So like you're going to sign this commercial treaty. And prior to this point, Japan was very much closed off to, to Europe and to yeah, the just world. A few, just a few ports, right? A few port trading yeah. posts. And again, most of the stuff really wasn't trade. They kind of just, it was just... The war, the different clans kind of just went at each other with that. Like, it wasn't really major things. It's like, we don't want anything from the West. And they're like, we're, we're doing good. But then Perry comes in. Again, they've got cannons and guns. The samurai at this point just have swords. 
Yeah, there was this controversial decision to open the country to Western commerce uh, and investment, specifically because there is a lot of peasant unrest and famine and poverty. And there was a huge resistance to the shogun because the shogun doesn't want to open it up. But there's such a resistance to the shogun among conservative forces in Japan, but also many samurai by this time who, because as you mentioned before, the samurai now have their own like castles. They they have certain status. They have a high status. And they're also seeing that the country's not doing well. So they begin calling for the restoration of power of the emperor. And what essentially happens is you have these two powerful clans, right? the Cho- Choshu and the Satsuma. Uh, they combine their efforts with a lot of samurais, and they topple the, um, the last Takagawa shogun and announce this imperial restoration. And that's in like early 1868. And basically feudalism is officially abolished by 1871. Within five years... So by mid-1870s, wearing of sword is officially forbidden to anyone except members of the National Armed Forces. So all samurai stipends were converted into government bonds. All samurai, like if you were an older samurai, you were given a certain status if you wanted to stay within the official military. As far as a samurai being in charge of a region or protecting a specific lord yeah, that's that's done yeah, that's done yeah it's gone and there was in 1877 there was a um samurai rebellion that was quickly crushed and that's really what that movie the last samurai talks about yeah. so they were trying to like you know keep that way of life from being abolished like you said pete they couldn't carry their swords around which also means they couldn't execute commoners who paid them disrespect they couldn't do that anymore either so the samurai, yeah. that wouldn't mean we can't just kill someone who disrespects us anymore so they kind of lose that power a lot of the samurai a lot of the younger ones become exchange students i read Right, because they were like they could they could read, they were well educated. So they did that. They started to open up their own schools. A lot of them. They became writers, reporters. They set up companies, and there's government service. So the samurai class itself, because they had that education, they become prominent people in like the government, in just industry, everything that's going on in Japan. That's what they become part of. A new Japan, right? So this is a restoration of they, the emperor. They kind yeah. of get assimilated, but because they were always at higher class and they had that higher education, they're able to modernized pretty easily on a whole. And it's kind of sad though. You're like, Japan opens to the Western world. Uh, they just all of a done. sudden, yeah, 25 years later. Done, <laughs> done. literally, like not right? Even, not even recognizable anymore, yeah. Yeah, feudalism's gone. The emperor's brought back into power. The emperor's like, no more shoguns, no more samurai. We're going to have a military. We're going to have guns. We're going to have an army and an army They're going to be like Europe, right? Don't they, they hire Britain to help them build a navy and train their literally. navy officers? They get... um. They buy American uh, books and American weapons. They get the Prussians and stuff like that to, cha- to train their armies. Like, they know what they're doing. Yeah, literally. By 1912, Japan, successful um, military strength, signed alliance with Britain in 1902. And then you have the, the Russia-Japanese war, right? I mean, they defeat the Russians in Manchuria, which is huge. Like, all of a sudden, it's like, wait, what? You, you were just a bunch of samurai, like, 50 years ago. Not even. Like, what is happening here? And by the end of World War One. So, you know, we're talking like 1919, uh, Japan has already recognized one of the big five powers alongside Britain, U.S., France, and Italy. And that, the speed with which Japan opened up, you know what I mean? Like ended feudalism, ended this, you know, shogun and samurai rule. It, it was just quick, to say the least. To the 1920s, like kind of as a revival of Japan's military tradition. Uh, really, the idea of it, yeah. Yep, like imperial aggression, Japan's entrance into World War II goes back to those traditions of Bushido principles, Banzai attacks, uh, 
death before dishonor or defeat. There was a strong sense of honor and discipline and devotion to the common cause. All of that really stems from early samurai and their and their code of Bushido. Yeah, well, they're, they're doing that again to get the people. It's something that everyone knows. It's something that's legendary status. So if they say now anyone can be, can, all you have to do is follow this Bushido code. Remember, a hundred years prior, if you if you did something like that, you'd be killed. If you weren't exactly. part of that class, right? Yeah. Now they're saying, no, no, now you're a part of it. You're a part of it now. The emperor says you're part of it. All you have to do is join the army, join the military. So people are going to gravitate. That. It's, 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 it's patriotism. It's an extreme form of it, but that's basically what it is too, right? Yep. Like looking back, nostalgia is huge, right? And in this case, you know, you study the history of the samurai and you realize that like only they could carry weapons, uh, only they had any status. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're told like you could be just like them. And it's like, oh, all right. Yeah, I learned about this in school. Yeah, yeah it's um, just like you, Pete, when you got your Indiana Jones hat and little whip and stuff like that, right? Started <laughs> digging in the backyard. You know, just like I always want, actually, I did get Indiana Jones hat. You laugh, but I, I do have one. I don't know where it is, but I, I do have one. I don't have a whip though. I, I, I saw one. Hat. I saw the new, the, the, the whips for the new movie. I saw them at Target, so. You could buy whip like like toys. Yeah, I don't know what it does. I don't, it's not. I doesn't. I just saw it real fast, but I'm sure it's not like a real whip. But it probably does something. You know, why sure, I'm, have... I'm sure my kids, my kids will want it. So see, why can't they make like you know Beat samurai cool? It. No, but make samurai cool and have like samurai stuff. Ninjas for some reason always got more play, especially in the '80s than samurai. Well, because they're it was it was an easier what, what, costume. Halloween costume, easier Halloween easier. costume. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's funny, but true. Anyway, I mean, I think that pretty much covers uh, Samurai, right? I mean, do you have anything else? I mean, we, I feel like we did so many fun no, facts. I think, I think, we, I think we, we did a lot of information. We don't want to overwhelm people. But, uh, you know, obviously we missed a lot. People can going to be, oh, you missed it. Of course, this is just a brief overview of some Samurai, their traditions a little bit. I'll give a little bit of information on it. Yeah, I would, I'd say that pretty much covers it. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for tuning in once more. We do appreciate it. Uh, if you need to find us, you can find us at www.historytalkingpodcast.com. Uh You could also check out the Evergreen website. We're on there as well. And you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram. And please feel free to email us with any questions or suggestions. We appreciate those. And we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.